Two and a Half Admins, episode 12. I'm Joe. I'm Jem. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And we'll have some free consulting later on, but let's start with some news. The first one is just hilarious. Ransomware accounted for 41% of all cyber insurance claims in the first half of 2020. (laughs) Where do we even start with this? I think just anything that has cyber in the name is inherently funny. Honestly, I don't even know what to say with it. Ransomware is already in some ways kind of hilarious to me. Like, I I get that people fall for it, obviously, because I have to deal with it professionally frequently enough. But I'm never going to really quite understand why so many people fall for it or why so few organizations have the kind of backups that, you know, render it not much of a problem. What's interesting with the ransomware that I saw is like the ones that hit the system that I had to clean up after was they used one of the the Microsoft remote desktop vulnerabilities to compromise the machine. And so like nobody clicked on something that was in an email attachment or something, you know, the usual ways you think of people getting uh, ransomware. This one was the machine was just sitting there and got remotely compromised. Was that a zero day though? Pretty close to a zero day. I think the fix had been available for a couple of days when they got hit, but it's not like they hadn't patched in months either. On the other hand, they had RDP exposed to the internet, so... Eh. Yeah, well, it was a, a server hosted at a in a data center, and it was, you know, in a different country than the company, and that was the only way they had to access it, but yeah. That's what VPNs are for. Yeah, well, try to tell that to people that only speak Greek. But yeah, the other interesting one was the, the other, like, 27% of the insurance incidents were funds transfer fraud, which I don't normally think of as falling under cyber security insurance. That's kind of interesting that it does fall on that. I there's I know there is a lot of that that goes on. I have yeah. seen that happen a few times under circumstances I can't talk about in detail or I'd have to kill you. But um, I mean, in general, like if you deal with anybody who deals with real estate stuff like, uh, you know, closing attorneys, realtors, what have you. Those folks, I mean, people are trying nonstop to compromise their email accounts. And if they do, they just kind of lurk doggo and they, you know, they watch for, uh, you know, notices of escrow payments to go through, which they will then immediately follow up with, oh, my bad, that was the wrong account number. This is the account number you should transfer that, you know, $530,000 to. And if you don't figure it out in 48 hours, that money's gone. I think one of the very first stories we did on TechSnap years and years ago They uh, conned the phone company into porting the guy's cell phone number to a burner phone. But first, they sent him some text messages claiming to be from the the cell phone provider saying, we're doing some maintenance on our network and your phone might not work very well tomorrow. And then managed to use that to to fool the two-factor authentication at his bank and basically steal the entire value of his home equity line of credit or whatever. That is some good social engineering right there. It always comes back to the same thing that a person is the weakest link in the chain. Always. Yeah, and I think the biggest uh, way that these fund transfer frauds happen is either, like you said, via email compromise or phishing or whatever, is you contact the secretary of some company claiming to be their boss, which maybe you actually have all the right inside stuff from having compromised emails, to be like, hey, you know, uh, I'm really, we need we need to pay this invoice to the supplier. Uh, it's for this important deal, you know, authorize this fund transfer or whatever. Uh, I think there was even a recent one where they did one of those like um, deep fake things with uh, machine learning to simulate the voice. They had enough recordings of the boss wow. that they could deep fake a script and, and you know, have the phone conversation uh, with the secretary 
with the voice being the person she was expecting, telling her to to send the money. Ah, put a little lyre bird into it. Nice. Yeah. I wonder how much money they're getting, you know, for some of it. Because if you really get screwed by ransomware, is the insurance actually going to be enough to to recover? And if you have something where it's not as bad, did you just get an insurance payout to deal with the cleanup and and... How does that work? I think that's usually how it works. Like you're not going to get compensated for, you know, the business damage done. You're going to get like a check that, you know, covers <laughs> Bob's Computer Janitors Incorporated to come in and restore your backups in whatever condition they're in. And like, that's it. But, you know, a lot of these insurance uh, policies will also have uh, requirements. Like, you know, you have to follow these network back practices and you have to have a virus scanner installed and all this other stuff. These days, the virus scanners can be as bad as as having the malware. Uh, not just for the performance problems, and but, but like a lot of these virus scanners have bundled into them open source software for doing things like file type matching and so on. But they have like five-year-old versions of the software with known vulnerabilities that they don't bother to update. Now, hang on, hang on, hang on, Alan. I, I can't believe that you're sitting here and telling me that some random process that you have to give access to literally every single piece of confidential data you own could possibly be an avenue for security problems. <laughs> or that the virus scanner that you're paying that expensive subscription for contains an eight-year-old version of lib what the hell ever that you can get for free on things. <laughs> it's like, yeah, uh, it's just terrible how old some of the software is like. And we saw the same thing when we were talking about router security the other day. Like how many of them have that like uh, libupmp or whatever, but have a version so old it's not even recognizable as the protocol. <laughs> you know, it's like pre-release versions of it from 10 years ago. And they're like, yeah, but it works. So we, you know, it, we'd have to spend engineering effort to make sure that a modern version of that would compile into our 16 megabyte Linux image that we chuck on the right ones flash. Ain't nobody got time for that. Exactly. So I wanted to ask you about ransomware, right? What is the best way to avoid getting it? And what's the best way to mitigate it if you get it for some reason? Presumably just backups and updates. Is it really that simple? Technically, there's really no answer to how do I avoid getting it. Um, Ransomware is usually delivered by way of email fish. So, you know, if you're taking it on that level, the answer is don't fall for fake emails. But it, like Alan said, it doesn't necessarily have to come by way of phishing email and, you know, click the shiny link. It could very well be a component of, you know, any other vulnerability. So there's no one answer to how to not get it. The more important question is, how do you make it be not a big deal? Because basically, ransomware is like really low-hanging fruit, right? Like those folks, it's not generally going to be super targeted. It's just this generic, well, we're going to encrypt all your crap. And if you want it back, you'll have to give us money. Well, if you're backing up all your crap and you can identify when the ransomware came in and just roll back all your stuff fairly painlessly to right before that, then there's no reason to give them money. So the answer is you not only have to back up everything that matters, you also have to do it in a way that it's not just an absolute catastrophe to have to restore it, which is the position that like, a lot of you know towns and municipalities and hospitals find themselves in as they may genuinely have the backups but be like you know it would cost us more to deal with restoring from backups than it would cost to pay these folks the 200 grand they're asking us for well and like you're saying because it's not targeted oftentimes the ask is a lot smaller than that because they're just targeting end users yeah and if they happen to accidentally hit a town they don't realize it <laughs> because it was just spamming and uh, like the report here says 
54% of it comes from email and phishing, another 30% from remote access, and then lots of other 4% from brute force and, and, and things like that. But I think Jim's point was right. Rather than focusing on how not to get the ransomware, because you can put lots of defenses up and reduce your chances, but you're never going to be completely immune to getting it. And so you have to try to make it as painless as possible to deal with if it does happen or even when it does happen. Yeah, I also saw the same thing when ransomware like that hit uh, the college where I was doing consulting. It was at one of the satellite campuses for nursing. And they're like, it's not a big deal. We have all the backups from you know the day before, but restoring them all over this 100 megabit point-to-point link is going to take two days and it's a big pain. I'm like, oh, if you had just had uh, a file system like ZFS where you can do snapshots, ZFS rollback takes literally a second or two at most. So shock horror, the answer is ZFS as usual. Yeah. Well, it's ZFS and actually take snapshots. That part's pretty important. <laughs> yeah, you actually have to have the snapshots because just ZFS by itself isn't going to help you if the file's been overwritten. Uh, it's going to have not overwrote them in place, but then reuse the the old version as a place to put the, the new version of some other file. So yeah, snapshots uh, are the good thing. You know, it can still end up causing a bit of trouble with ransomware because the ransomware is now going to, as it writes the encrypted version, take up more space. You're going to double the, the space for everything that gets encrypted because uh, you're going to keep the original version and have the encrypted version. But, you know, that can be an extra sign when something's going wrong. It's like suddenly we used up terabytes of space that we weren't expecting. Well, and you get all that space back when you do the rollback anyway, so it's fine. Um, my first actual in the wild experience with ransomware was back in the uh, the crypto locker days. And uh, a client of mine, somebody clicked the shiny link in the email and they started uh, that she was not aware of it. But uh, things start getting encrypted on the server. And when I got the call, the complaint was that uh, a particular database application was frequently returning garbage in the records. And when I investigated, I pretty rapidly saw that, you know, lots of things were becoming, quote, corrupt, unquote. And then I found the ransomware message on the desktop, you know, of the file server for the organization. I was like, oh, 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 I'm excited. Woo, ransomware. <laughs> um, not CryptoLocker, CryptoWalls. It wasn't the initial wave, but it's within like a year of people really becoming aware of what uh, ransomware was. And the news is full of stories of, you know, I mean, people are like going out of business or their systems are down for weeks. They're losing data. And you know I knew this was not going to be a big deal because I was taking hourly snapshots. So it turns out that uh, they had started notice, noticing corrupted records from this database-backed application within about 10 minutes of when the incursion was. And they called me about another five minutes later. So I had figured out what was going on within like another five minutes of that. Long story short, their most recent hourly was actually, you know, still just prior to the infection. So all I had to do was figure out the ownership on, you know, these uh, encrypted files, track it down to that laptop, make sure that laptop was completely unplugged, powered off and everything else. And then roll back to the most recent hourly. They lost like 15 minutes of work. And, uh, you know, from the time that we started messing with the server, it's back up in five minutes. So not a huge deal. I'm not going to lie. That was exciting for me because in the midst of all these stories about how horrible this this is, you know, I'm like, (laughs) not a big deal. ZFS, roll back, done. The one that I saw that I thought was really clever, I forget the name of the ransomware. It was one of the later strains. What I noticed was how quickly it had managed to encrypt a very, very large amount of data. Like there was terabytes and terabytes of data. I'm like, how did it possibly encrypt all that data that quickly? That would just take a long time. Especially since 
again, in this case, it was uh, an infected client machine accessing stuff on a server. It turns out this uh, ransomware encrypted only the first one megabyte, the last one megabyte, and the one megabyte like 33% into the file. <laughs> mm. So the files aren't usable, but it only has to write three megabytes for each file instead of, you know, if it's encrypting a, a you know, 100 gig file, it only has to write three megabytes to it. So it made this the rollback really fast and so on. Uh, but it was just interesting to see, you know, some of these ransomware getting smarter about disable access to all the files very quickly uh, rather than worry about, oh, I ran into a big file, I'm going to sit there encrypting it for a long time and maybe miss out on encrypting the files that would have caused enough pain to make people pay the ransom. Story from my disreputable youth. When I got out of the Navy, I had a hard time for a couple of years and I worked uh, for a while as a rent-to-own collections agent. <laughs> and all I was doing is calling people, harassing them for the money they hadn't paid for their rent-to-own products. And then, you know, if I couldn't get them on the phone, like literally going to their house and being like, give me money or I'm taking your crap. And one time we had collected so much stuff, there was literally no more room in the van at our last stop where somebody had not made the payments for, you know, like a couple of months on their couch. And since we didn't have room for the couch in the van, we just took the cushions. (laughs) (laughs) That's your ransomware, Alan. They're like, we ain't got time for all that. Let's just take the cushions. Okay, this episode is sponsored by TrueNAS from iX Systems. Go to truenas.com. TrueNAS and FreeNAS have now unified as TrueNAS, the number one open storage OS. TrueNAS uses the power and reliability of OpenZFS to bring open source economics to enterprise grade unified storage with support for file, block, object, and app storage. You can use the free TrueNAS Core Edition or invest in a TrueNAS Enterprise system. Coming soon is TrueNAS Scale, which provides open hyperconverged infrastructure with support for Linux containers, and you can follow the development, try out, and contribute to this exciting project. Check out truenas.com and see how TrueNAS can support your next storage project, whether it's just a few terabytes all the way up to multiple petabytes. That's truenas.com. All right, well, it wouldn't be an episode of this show if we weren't ragging on Western Digital. So what have they done in the last couple of weeks, Jim? <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, this, it's actually not what they've done in the last couple of weeks. It's it's what got in the news the last couple of weeks. They've been doing it for years. But the long story short is when Western Digital tells you what RPM one of their consumer drives is, they aren't actually telling you what RPM that drive is. They have created a fictitious RPM class and so if it's a cheaper drive, they call it 5400 RPM class. If it's a more expensive drive, they call it 7200 RPM class. But in reality, they're all 7200 RPM. And you might think this is not a big deal. I mean, I'd pay extra for the 7200 RPM, you know, a happy birthday to me, right? Mm. But it turns out that a lot of folks who are building low energy and especially, uh, you know, really quiet NASs that they have to live in small spaces with, they don't really care about the extra performance, you know, from a higher spindle speed, but they do really want the lower power consumption and, uh, you know, less noise generation of the slower drives. Yeah, less heat. Yeah, they, they get really irritated when they discover they've actually got 7200 RPM drives and their NAS, which was supposed to be quiet, sounds like it's, you know, grinding coffee all night long. You know, I, I reached out to Western Digital and, um, yeah, I mean, the answer just basically comes down to, yeah, that's that's what we do and it's cool. I think they were assuming people use the 5400 RPM as as a performance spec. It's like, is it either a, a, a lower end drive or a higher end drive? It's like, no, 
you know, the RPM is the RPM. It actually matters. And yeah, like uh, Jim highlighted in the, the website here, it's like, if you have this Western Digital Drive that claims to be 5,400 RPM, but isn't, it's actually using, was that 8.8 watts as opposed to the five point something it'd be using if it was actually spinning at the slower speed. And that's the whole difference. You know, you're going to put a dozen of these in a machine that adds up. Yeah. So it seems clear to me that what Western Digital was doing is they discovered that due to economies of scale, it costs less money to just make everything with the, you know, the higher speed spindle than to actually maintain two product lines. We see that over and over again in the tech industry. There was a period of time when uh, the difference between an Intel Celeron and an Intel Pentium was literally burning three quarters of the cash off with a laser. That was what made a Celeron. So this happens a lot, but what really bothers me here is that if Western Digital wanted to preserve that market segmentation, you can still have, you know, consumer friendly classes, but you could literally just say, this is an economy class drive. This is a performance class drive. Isn't that what the colors are supposed to mean anyway? Uh, But don't just make up something with an actual unit that means things, you know? I mean, imagine you went to go buy a car at the dealership and it said it was, you know, a four cylinder class on the windshield. And you're like, okay, that's fine. You get it home, you find it. Oh, turns out this is actually a, you know, 5.2 liter V8 in this thing. And it's slow. Sure. But you know, it gets three gallons to the mile. So just before we started recording this, you broke a story on ours with these Walmart gateway laptops. I should say gateway in quotes. Yeah, definitely gateway in scare quotes. So, you know, the short version of the story is, uh, you know, the the older folks around are going to remember the iconic gateway brand from the uh, mid to late 90s, um, died in the mid 2000s. They're the ones in all the big box stores that had the cowhide, you know, on the, uh, the, the little cowhide on a cube logo, right? Lots of TV commercials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of TV commercials, lots of enormous fold out ads in like computer magazines. But the brand went under in 2007 and was sold to Acer uh, for a song. And um, this week, a whole line of gateway laptops showed up in Walmart. They're Walmart exclusives. And the entire, you know, technical Internet has reported on that. And a lot of folks have, you know, said, oh, well, you know, these are Acer laptops in all but name and point out that Acer bought the brand in 2007. What they missed is that, yes, Acer bought the brand, but Acer is only licensing that brand. Those are not Acer laptops. They're Evu, which is the same folks that made that $140 laptop. Abomination. Yeah, that I trashed on ours a while back because it literally was uncooled, was, you know, underclocked to like half of what it should have been, was completely unusable for anything. And a matter of fact, that exact same model Granted, with more RAM and more storage, but otherwise that exact same model, I mean, keyboard, you know, chassis and everything, that is one of the models in this new gateway lineup. But we don't know about the cooling yet. (laughs) I mean, it's the same chassis, so... No, we we don't know. I I haven't gotten one and torn it apart. Yeah. Is that the plan, though? So the the minute I saw this line go out, I've been on kind of a mission to find decent, cheap laptops because I know a lot of people are hurting and they don't have money to spend and they need new laptops without, you know, breaking the bank on them. And so when I saw this new line of gateway laptops had dropped, I immediately went to walmart.com and ordered a couple. And one of them was, in fact, the A49120E powered model, because I've always felt like that Evu didn't do that CPU justice. And maybe if something wasn't so crappy that then, you know, it, it would 
it would be fine with that CPU. And I was like, oh, okay, let's see if these gateway folks got it right. I canceled the order once I discovered that... Uh, it's probably exactly the same machine. <laughs> yeah, so what happened was that they're also, um, they have two models of Android tablet under the gateway brand as well. And oddly enough, one of them is on sale at Walmart. The other one is only shows up at gateway.com and it has a buy now link that doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> so I got curious and I Googled that model number. And what I discovered was uh, an entry at FCC ID, you know, where you get your FCC certification for wireless products for that tablet. But the registrant wasn't gateway. It was Evu. And I was like, oh, so now I'm thinking like, okay, there's a connection between Gateway and Evu, but let me look at this a little bit closer. So then I start looking, well, I ended up looking at U.S. customs records for shipments going to Evu, and I discovered a single shipment to Evu that not only had, uh, you know, these Gateway models in it, but it also had Evu models. Like they're both models, Evu and Gateway in the same shipment from uh, Bjorn in China to Evu in California. So, you know, insert your Pam from the office, GIF here. You know, it's the same laptop. GIF. Yeah. GIF. GIF. But what I'm really concerned about is the uh, Creator Series one they're trying to sell for $1,000, with you know, apparently has an NVIDIA 2060 in it. And I'm like, you know... <laughs> buy that and then it's gonna be gimped in weird ways or something like the cheap one you were talking about it probably won't be that bad well it's only got eight gigs of ram for a thousand dollars yeah the only EV laptop i've torn apart was that 140 dollar one i have seen people say that they got some of the more expensive emu model evu models I mean, nobody's like just gone on about how amazing they were, but I've heard people say, I bought this like six or $700, you know, gaming Evo laptop and it's not bad. So my guess is that thousand dollar laptop with the 2060 will probably be not bad. And I'm making the air quotes with my fingers over here. So I did cancel the order for the lowest end one, the $180 one, but uh, I am, I, I did not cancel the order for the $350 model, which uses a uh, Ryzen 3. Um, I think there's a decent chance that that will be an actual laptop, for lack of better words, for 350 bucks, and uh, that would be worthwhile if so. So that order is still in play, and we'll hope for the best. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring and analytics platform for comprehensive visibility into your Linux environment. By uniting metrics and events from servers, databases, applications, and more, Datadog can easily give you a unified view into your entire infrastructure, easily identify hidden sources of latency, like overloaded hosts, by monitoring server metrics alongside application data. With machine learning-based alerts and features like anomaly detection, Datadog can also help you to monitor and alert on the health of your servers in real time without alert fatigue. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash 25admins. Start your trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash 25admins. All right, let's do some free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, you can do so via email, show at 2.5admins.com. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, you can do so on Patreon. There's details for that at 2.5admins.com. And thank you everyone who is supporting us. It is really appreciated. And remember, you can get an advert-free RSS feed if you support us for $5 or more. So, Ben writes to us, 
and says, I've been using tools like Puppet and Salt for configuration management. To set the options I need on the servers I'm managing, I'll often end up creating my own template of a configuration file. However, I'm worried that by creating my own versions of config files, I might miss out on important changes in other parts of the file when software is updated, like a change to security settings to deprecate a weak cipher or something like that. At the moment, I'm diffing key config files when upgrading between releases to see if anything important has changed, and then updating my template to take up any changes. I'm wondering if you know of a better way to manage this, or if there's other approaches I should be looking at to manage configuration without baking in outdated options. Yeah, it depends a bit. Uh, a lot of tools now support basically included configuration files. Yes. So you can have the default sit over the side, and then you make your own... Uh, you're, you're, you make your changes in a different file that also gets included. Uh, and that's definitely the best approach. Uh, and most systems even uh, now let you do uh, other things that way, like cron tabs, so that when you install a package, it can automatically set up uh, the log rotate config files and stuff like that. And it helps a lot. Uh, and, you know, in FreeBSD, there's been some work and a push towards making more and more things support that so that, yeah, when you do need to add or change configuration options, you can do that in a separate file so that the stock one gets updated as part of the operating system and you know you inherit those new defaults uh, like you were worried about. Uh, SSHD is not one of the tools that supports that. And I'm guessing that's one of the ones you're mentioning specifically because you talked about uh, ciphers. And that's one of the biggest ones that's a pain for me still is that I use uh, a similar template like you're talking about and just have to deal with that uh, when updating. And it can get especially tricky when you're supporting more than one version of an OS. You know, half your servers are updated to the latest ones and the other ones are still running a slightly older one. And maybe it's a different version of SSH and the, the new cipher isn't an option on the older machines yet. It can be a bit complicated. I mean, what Alan said about includes is exactly what, you know, I was waiting to say to begin with. That's the big thing. But part of the problem here is that you you have to expect the packages that you're configuring to be sane in the first place. It's 2020 and absolutely almost everything really ought to be supporting include directives out of the bat or, you know, already be set up from the jump, you know, kind of like my own Sanoid is where you've got a Sanoid.conf that's just your local stuff and you've got a Sanoid.defaults.conf where, you know, things that are package manager maintained live. And uh, it says, you know, right there, you know, d don't mess with this. This, uh, the defaults.conf is, you know, for the package maintainers, uh, you know, you do your overrides in the main conf file. Um, the best setup really is like, you know, a modern Apache, you usually have entire include directories. So not only can you have separate files for your own config things, you can even break them out, you know, according to your own groupings, like, you know, maybe this one is performance tuning and this one is setting up a particular directory that, you know, the package manages or, or what have you. Now, when you don't have those options, like with SSH, so you can't just have a file that you include, but what you can generally do is still maintain all of your own changes in a separate file. And you may be able to literally just append that to the other, you know, original file. So you're only overriding the things you care about. For almost any package, it should at least work such that the latest entry for a particular parameter overrides any earlier entries for that parameter. So, you know, if you set foo equals bar at the top of the file and you set foo equals baz at the bottom of the file, the only thing that matters is where you set foo equals baz. 
So again, there, you know, you have to do a little bit more work to manage it, but you can at least keep all your stuff in separately and, you know, get it in there easily and sanely. Where that model breaks down is when you have, uh, you know, if you manage something like bind, where you have a ton of different config sections and the things that you want to override have to be overridden within that actual section and you end up just having to do surgery. Um, that unfortunately sucks. And when you encounter that kind of thing, you just have to deal with it. I'm sorry. The last thing I'll say on the topic is you absolutely should be worried about whether or not you're missing out by not getting, you know, new package maintainer versions of the config file, because yes, these things absolutely do change over time. And one of the biggest problems I frequently see in Samba, for instance, is I see people with these cargo cult, you know, tuned out to the max Samba configurations that they copied off of some website in like 2008 and have been carrying with them ever since and perform absolutely horribly on a modern system. Mm -hmm. But that's just what they do and what they've always done. Don't let yourself fall in that trap. Yeah. So include solve almost all of it. Like Jim said, sometimes the solution is you write your config file, the, your template writes the config file to a new place. And part of the template is literally include the original file that the package maintains and then add these lines or change these bits of it and write it out. And then you just somewhere, wherever you have to do it, specify, hey, OpenSSHD, your config file isn't the default location. It's actually over here. And that way, when the default location one changes, your template rebuilds based on that original version. The other option is there uh, Puppet, I think, has a tool. I forget the name of it. It starts with an A that's better at understanding config files and allowing you to basically edit the file in place. In mine, like the main thing I want to change in my SSHD is turn use DNS to no uh, so that if my IP address doesn't resolve, reverse resolve properly, I don't have this big delay during login. And because I just don't want to be spending all my time doing DNS queries on the people who are trying to connect to my SSHD. That's one of about 15 different tunables you have to set if you don't want SSH logins to occasionally randomly take forever. Yeah. You know, I just want to edit that one thing. And so sometimes that tool is better there. The problem is it doesn't really help you when you do your update. And then because the files change, it doesn't necessarily get updated or, uh, you know, it gets overwritten and whatever. But so there are tools for editing config files in place. But the problem we've seen everywhere is that, you know, every damn tool uses a different config file syntax. Even the ones that look almost the same aren't actually. Uh, it's, you know, why I kind of got on the bandwagon with uh, UCL, the universal config language, which is like a superset of YAML and JSON and so on, but with comments and with syntactic sugars, you can put M and K and automatically have it or, you know, even for time and stuff. We had 14 incompatible standards. So I said, let's create one single standard to unify them all. Now we have 15 incompatible standards. <laughs> I didn't create it. I just grabbed one that existed and started converting things to it. Mostly because, you know, on FreeBSD, we have that concept of the defaults. So there's ETC, but there's a separate directory, ETC defaults. And that's where all the defaults go. And then you're only supposed to have to change the bits that go in ETC. Uh, the problem is for the log rotate thing, it's well, used to be just this one monolithic file. Now it has includes and that helps. But I want to disable compression on all of the log files because I don't want to spend my time running XZIP on that log file because it's sitting on ZFS and it's already compressed. It's not compressed as much because LZF4 isn't quite as good as XZIP, but I don't care. I don't want to spend a bunch of time decompressing the file and recompressing it with a slightly better compressor. Why didn't you set compress equals GZIP on your logs data set, Alan? Come on. Because GZIP sucks ass. <laughs> 
It's plain text. It'll be fine. Although, good news, everyone. I merged Zed Standard into ZFS like last week. And so when OpenZFS 2.0 comes out in a couple of months and you update to it on Linux, you'll be able to set compress equals Zed Standard dash 10 or something on your log data set and it'll be glorious. I can't wait to use that in a couple of years when it hits the major distros. Yeah, we'll get that in April 2022 probably. Well, it'll be 3.0 by then then. You know, OpenZFS is targeting a major version every year. Cyborg Richard Nixon from Futurama will be president. <laughs> well, I can't fix the Linux ecosystem. I can just fix ZFS. All right, well, let's get out of here then. If you want to send your questions for Jim and Alan, remember, show at 2.5admins.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll be back in two weeks. <laughs>